And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So, longtime listeners of the program are going to know that I love my conspiracy theories. Now, when I say that, I mean the old school ones, the classics, you know, Bigfoot, UFOs, JFK assassination, stuff like that. These new conspiracy theories, QAnon, uh, you know, take livestock dewormer to prevent COVID, you know, inject bleach into your lungs. These kind of things, even by my standards, seem off the wall and definitely not fun because there's no one, no one getting into fights over, uh, you know, UFOs. Well, actually, that's not true because the Bigfoot people can't stand the UFO people. and There's lots of fighting going in there. So maybe there are parallels between that and what's going on in our current world. But but I digress. Here's what I do know. I know that the greatest, the most fertile ground for conspiracy theories is the Cold War. Because during this time, it was kind of the Wild West. I mean, there was tons of money flowing into secret projects, black budget locations, uh, all to keep an eye on the Soviet Union and to counter their espionage attempts. So when you got all this, you know, we got all this money flowing into these projects that no one is supposed to know about in our top secret, of course, it's going to lead to conspiracy theories. And I got to tell you, the granddaddy of them all, you know, probably UFOs is probably the granddaddy of them all, but this is definitely a close second. And that would be the MK Ultra mind control experiments that were carried out by the CIA during, uh, you know, the, the uh, 50s to the 70s, I think it's official, it was its official time period. We're going to get into all that today, obviously, because we're talking with Stephen Kinzer, who, you know, there's a lot out about the MK Ultra experiments, but Stephen did so much research, did a deep dive, and wrote a great book called Poisoner in Chief. And if you're wondering why a book about mind control is called Poisoner in Chief, well, don't worry. We're going to find that out soon enough. So this is something we got to get right into because you're going to love this show. So first of all, Stephen, thank you so much for being on the show today. This is a heck of a story, Stephen. It really is. I, I This one legitimately, and I'm not making this up, this legitimately kept me up at night. Um, I, I was, I did not, I've always been interested in MK Ultra. you know, the, the mind control experiments. I'm a big coast to coast fan. You know, I love all those conspiracy theories. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not queuing on a conspiracy level, but I've always found these stories to be enjoyable. And I thought a lot of th- these things had something to them. So I w- was really interested in your book. I did kind of cock my eyebrow at Poisoner in Chief because I was like, that's a weird title for a book about mind control. And then I realized that this is actually a book about Sidney Gottlieb and that MKUltra is just a small part of this entire legacy. So, you know, I know you've probably been asked this a million times, but I have to know a few things right off the bat before we get into this because this is 
this was really the most impressive part. I mean, how did you stumble across this? How did you get into this? How did you untangle this this web of mystery involving the CIA top? C- I mean, above top secret information. You know, there's there's missions, there's money conduits, a subterfuge. Uh, how did you do this? It was difficult because essentially I was writing the biography of a book of a person who did not exist, a, a person who lived in total invisibility. So I had to kind of piece it together, and uh, it, it's, it was quite a project. But you ask, how did I focus on it? How did I get to this project? So uh, the story goes like this. Uh, I had written a book earlier called The Brothers, which was the story of uh, Secretary of State John Foster Dulles and his uh, brother uh, Alan Dulles, who was head of the CIA during the 1950s. And in that book, I talk about various plots that the Dulles brothers were involved in. Uh, Now, one of those plots was a plot to kill the prime minister of the Congo, Patrice Lumumba. This assassination had been ordered by President Eisenhower. It was given to Alan Dulles, the head of the CIA, and uh, he arranged for poison to be sent to the CIA station chief in the Congo to be used to kill the prime minister of the country. So uh, this was a kind of a footnote in my book about the Dulles brothers, but the story stuck with me. And I began to wonder, now, wait a minute, this, this has to be the only time in American history that an official of the United States government was sent to another country carrying poison to assassinate the leader of that country. I mean, that doesn't happen very often. So who, <laughs> We hope so. I guess, right. Sorry, yeah. no. Uh, so who was that guy? Who brought it? Was it a courier, uh, some kind of a messenger, or a person from the CIA? The more I got into it, the more I realized, no, it was not a courier. The person who brought the poison to the Congo was actually the person who made it, and that was Sidney Gottlieb. So then I realized this guy was a chemist at the CIA, and he was, as I came to realize, the CIA's poisoner-in-chief. He was the one who made all those uh, poison cigars and uh, poison pills uh, that were supposed to be used to kill Fidel Castro. Uh, Mm -hmm. At one point, he made uh, poison that was intended to kill Zhou Enlai, the Chinese prime minister. You'll remember that uh, sometimes uh, the CIA gave suicide pills, either to agents working in very uh, dangerous situations or, uh, in 1960, to the pilots of the U-2 spy planes. It was also Sidney Gottlieb who made those poisons. So he was truly the poisoner-in-chief for the U.S. government. Uh, That got me kind of interested, and I noticed that um, he had actually been named in uh, the hearings that the U.S. Senate carried out into the CIA in the mid-1970s. And he was questioned about his involvement in these assassination plots. The senators didn't know anything about MK Ultra; They really were walking blind. And in fact, I came to realize that Gottlieb's work preparing poisons to kill foreign leaders and whoever else we wanted to kill was actually not the important part of his life or work. In that job, he was essentially just a pharmacist. If he hadn't been there, 
another chemist would have made the poisons and probably done almost as well. But then I began to look deeper into Gottlieb, and I realized something that the senators never realized in the mid-70s, which is that being the CIA's chief poisoner was just a sidelight, just a small part of Sidney mm-hmm. Gottlieb's work. And the real story of his life was MK Ultra, because had it not been for Gottlieb, MK Ultra might have been very, very different. It might not have been so brutal, so extreme. Uh, we don't know. But that was a project that Gottlieb completely dominated. He was given total freedom. He had what amounted to a license to kill issued by the U.S. government. He could go to foreign countries and requisition prisoners who he would then experiment on and in some cases experiment them to death. Uh, and he, in, he conceived the entire project and he decided what kinds of so-called experiments were necessary, what kind of direction the project should uh, go in. So MK Ultra is a much bigger story than a guy that made poisons who could have been replaced by any other smart chemist. That's when I began to realize that this is something I'm always looking for when I'm writing books, and that is an untold story. I'm always looking for a story that was really big and important, but for whatever reason has been left behind or overlooked by history. I tell you, I have written 10 books. This is my 10th book, Poisoner in Chief. In the course of writing my other books, I've discovered a number of things that were quite surprising about uh, U.S. involvement in the rest of the world. Some people have been shocked by things that I've reported in my books, but this is the first time I have been shocked. I still can't wrap <laughs> my mind around the fact that there was such a project yeah. as MK Ultra and such a person as Sidney Gottlieb. And it was in order to respond to that astonishment that I set out to write Poisoner in Chiefs. Well, I mean, you astonished me. I, I mean, it was actually, you know, I, I'm one of the few people who is both a patriot but also understands that like every other government in every other country, the United States has dirty secrets, skeletons in its closet uh, that, you know, go go as far back as the, the genocide that founded this country. Uh, but, but you know, it's no different than a lot of other countries. And so I'm not I'm, I, I never really uh, excuse it, but I understand we're no better than anyone else. We're just like everyone else. And this one, this this story really kind of proved that to me because we're going to go into some of the details. Hopefully we'll get to some of the details of MK Ultra. But just to put a button on the poison thing, which I thought was really interesting, is I did a whole episode on the history of poisons. And, you know, that goes back in the Victorian area, Victorian era back, you know, Romans, the Greeks, all that. But the the last thing we talked about was Putin and his, I mean, he's very inventive with his poisons as well. And I couldn't help but think, and you know, in, in your, your time as a foreign correspondent, you might be able to give a little, uh, you know, a little insight on this. I couldn't help but think that Putin in some ways was inspired by Sidney Gottlieb because he is just as creative, you know, more with radioactive poisons, but just as creative as Sidney Gottlieb. Uh, that was kind of interesting. What do, what do you think about that really quickly? Does that, did you ever think about uh, that ever cross your mind? I don't think that uh, anything that's happening uh, in Russia now is comparable to MK Ultra. Uh, no, 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 think, no, no, no. And when it no. comes to poisoning, uh, I guess it's been a tool of government ever since the days of 
Agrippina in uh, ancient Rome. Um, mm-hmm. I don't have any indication that they became interested in this because of Gottlieb, but uh, the fact that the CIA was so intensely involved in trying to assassinate Castro and the fact that so many of those assassination attempts were poison oriented must have drawn the attention of people in secret services in other countries. What that led to, <laughs> uh, I can only speculate. Fair enough. No, that, that's fair. Yeah, and it, what's actually so interesting, you bring up a good point there, is because one of the things that I think people forget, and I want people listening to understand as they, as they read your book and they hear the story, you know, the time is 1947. You know, we're in the middle of the Cold War. You know, World War II was two years ago. We fought the Nazis. Uh, and as far as the world was concerned, we were after our new enemy. And that was with the Soviets, the communists. We we're out to get them. But the Nazis played a very important role in our story because they were, everyone knows that they were, you know, they were involved in horrendous experiments, human experimentation. And that legacy, dare I say, their reputation preceded them. And those experiments become very important to their legacy and a very important note in this story. But we start just basically picked up where they left off. We brought their people over and then we went after the Russians immediately, like 1947, which is which is so strange to me. And people don't understand the the paranoia that surrounded the American government, uh, you know, around the Cold War and what the Russians were capable of. We really thought they were capable of a lot more than what they were. And as you mentioned, you don't think that there was ever an MK Ultra in Russia, but we for sure thought that there was, which I don't even, you know, for all we say about the, the Russians, Russian history and Vladimir Putin poisoning, there's, we do not, you know, we, we don't hold a candle or they don't hold a candle to, to what we were capable of. Uh, but, you know, another, another really fascinating part of this story is how you open the book with Sidney Gottlieb retiring in 1973 when MK Ultra, I think it officially ends there. He's going on a humanitarian trip with his wife. And I really, th- this was kind of what, what I, you know, besides all the atrocities that I didn't, I couldn't possibly believe that, that the American government sanctioned. But this, this juxtaposition of Sidney Gottlieb's home life and his, you know, almost Victorian era mad scientist, Frankensteinian, you know, character, uh, you know, instead of human flesh, he's piecing together and destroying people's minds, right? Like that's what he's doing in his work life. But at home, you know, he's he's a, a wonderful husband. He's taking up folk dancing with his wife. He lives in the country. He's, he lives on a farm raising goats and goat milk and his, you know, his neighbors love him. He's like, the, he's like Ned Flanders at home but more like a Jeffrey Dahmer type in his professional life. You know, he seems like a normal guy, but he's out there, you know, drilling holes into people's brains, poison, pouring acid in there, trying to control them. I mean, actually, the parallels to Jeffrey Dahmer are, are kind of interesting now that I've mentioned that, but I don't want to take us down a whole different road. Did that strike you? Because to me, that was like the one thing that I, it's almost Dexter, right? It's almost like watching Dexter in real life. Let me first, before I get to that, answer something you mentioned a little earlier, which was the Cold War paranoia, because I don't think you can understand how the U.S. government would have permitted a project like this without understanding the mindset of the era. Uh, The CIA was convinced or convinced itself, and then that went on to spread to the entire American people, that the United States of America was under the threat of instant annihilation at any moment, that the Mm -hmm. Soviets were plotting not only an attack on the United States, but a world conquest that would make 
impossible any meaningful human life. So uh, when the stakes are that high, the idea that you have to sacrifice a few lives or even a few hundred lives would seem like a very uh, small price to pay. And that might be one mm-hmm. of the lessons that we can take away from MK Ultra. that uh, yeah. it's always dangerous to say, uh, normally we wouldn't do these things. But in this emergency situation, we have to put aside our normal legal and ethical and moral stance. But the, the, that emergency never really seems to end. We still have the same thing now because of terrorism, because of all these fears. We can't do this. We have to temporarily give up some of our freedoms and do these bad things. So that's a dangerous road to travel. Yep. Uh, now, getting to the question of Sidney Gottlieb himself, uh, you, you put your finger on one of the most fascinating parts of his bizarre character. And, and I tell you, I had to live in a little room with him for a couple of years, more or less, while I was writing this book. <laughs> and right, I think yeah. I probably know more about Sidney Gottlieb than anybody in the world, other than his own family. Um, but that's still quite little. So this is one of the most striking aspects of Gottlieb. As you say, he was carrying out and supervising these diabolical Uh, experiments, which amounted essentially to medical torture, and in some cases, medical Mm -hmm. murder, um, he didn't seem to have any limit to the kinds of uh, effects that he would inflict, the kinds of suffering that he would inflict on his uh, victims. Uh, The the stories in the book are, are so gruesome that in some cases when I was proofreading the book, I would just skip over some of those paragraphs because I didn't want to read them over and over again. Um, But at the same time, Gottlieb uh, was a deeply compassionate human being in his private life. As you say, he lived uh, very unlike any other federal bureaucrat in the 1950s, I'm sure, out on a what we would now call kind of an eco farm. He had no running water because that was uh, environmentally destructive. Um, He uh, milked his goats before dawn every morning. Uh, He wrote poetry. He studied Buddhism. Uh, He he was a great um, supporter of community uh, projects in the town where he lived. Uh, And as you said, uh, quite beloved and appreciated by his neighbors who knew nothing about what he was doing during the day. So I would imagine, was there something that happened to him? Like when he crossed the Potomac, he left Washington, he'd drive home, he'd cross the Potomac, and then maybe he'd leave behind that whole persona in Washington Mm -hmm. and take on this warm and loving humanitarianism uh, for for his private life. It really is a a striking uh, contrast. And uh, I had to turn over in my mind the question of, how this could be. Why? Why was he like this? Why was a person who was so humanitarian and who immediately after retiring decided, as you pointed out with his wife, to spend the rest of their lives going out and helping suffering people around the world? Why would he have carried out such horrific operations and experiments and tortures? Uh, The only explanation I can come up with is this. Uh, Gottlieb, as I pointed out, was a, an unusual person. He, he didn't live a normal lifestyle. Um, and that was possible in the United States. So his parents had emigrated from Central Europe to escape the Third Reich. And uh, I think he may have gotten himself 
into a version of the Cold War mindset that we just talked about. And that version would tell him, I'm offbeat. I'm an individual. I have my own persona. Our country is now threatened by a force that's going to make it impossible forever for anyone to live like I do. Everyone will have to be an automaton. You will have no freedom. There will be, you'll basically be kind of an android with no mind, just a robot programmed by your communist masters. This was really what Americans were being told. And so maybe he thought, I'm preserving the possibility of meaningful, gentle, loving human life by torturing and uh, tormenting people. That's the only way I've, I'm able to figure out how these uh, to- totally different sides of his personality could fit together. Now, I just add one other footnote to this. Uh, who, who might know better than I? What I'm telling you now about his persona is only my own speculation. Who might know for real or, or much better? The people who would know would be his three surviving children who are now all in their 60s or early 70s. Um, However, after Sidney Gottlieb died in 1999, his widow called the children together and made them promise that they would never speak about their father ever. And so I didn't realize this. Uh, In my uh, research, I was trying to get in touch with those siblings. And uh, I sent emails and uh, Facebook messages and registered letters and all kinds of things. I never got a reply. And I was on the verge of flying out to Madison, Wisconsin, where his uh, son lives. And just uh, what we say in journalism, I was going to doorstop him, you know what they say. You know, I just wait till he comes out. But I did finally, by a felicitous coincidence, find a person who was very close to the siblings, but therefore not one of them, so was not bound by this oath. And she's the one who told me, forget it. They're not going to talk to you because this episode happened. They've promised their mother. So I didn't realize that, but that was the reason why uh, they never replied to my inquiries. And I still have this fantasy in the back of my mind that one day one of them will get in touch or I'm going to try again. And now that the book is out and see if I couldn't uh, coax any of them out of their shell, because uh, even though the book is finished, I'm intensely curious about the question you just asked. I've given you what I think might be the answer, but I'd like to know the real answer just as much as you would. And those loving siblings are probably the only three people who could shed more insight on it. I mean, I think that that's a great point. I mean, I'd love to know that as well, because you bring up, you know, later on in the book, you know, when, you know, Sydney's older and he's being questioned, I think, you know, going to the, uh, you know, the, the, the inquisitions by the, the Congress. And, you know, he's getting asked a lot of questions, by a lot of people, a lot of lawsuits at some point, I forget which exact point, you know, he basically says, you know, that's Sidney Gottlieb. I don't remember him. You know, he talks about it almost in the third person, like that's, that's right. a different guy. Like I, I, I'm this guy now, 
And I don't really remember all the stuff that he did. I mean, maybe it's a real genuine compartmentalization. I mean, that is what the CIA and, you know, most most uh, American <laughs> government institutions are good at is compartmentalization, especially those higher levels with top secret information. Maybe that's part of it. I don't know. But it, it was really striking. And I do hope that you get them to talk. It is a shame, you know, with a, with a lot of this story. I was watching Wormwood uh, to prepare for this. So people, you know, listening, that's a it's a series on Netflix done by my favorite documentary filmmaker, Earl Morris about a very specific incident within the MK Ultra world which is the death of Frank Olson. Uh, and in that, you know, you you f- you find the true story of what happens based, you know, with you know within a couple degrees of separation. Uh, but it's it's fascinating because a lot of this information is gone forever once people die and it's a shame. I'm actually a big fan of deathbed confessions, you know. I, I think that those, I mean, at some point you want to know what's really going on, and I think it's important to know. Um, but you know, let let's let's dive into it. let's see what we can get through here, um, because you know we've painted a picture of of Sidney Gottlieb in his later life, but I think some of these early events, uh, you know, situations really might might give us a little bit of insight. You know, he. Um, he was, he, as you mentioned, he was Jewish, uh, which is which I think is going to be important in a second. He had a club foot and a stutter, and he started out as an agricultural science student, who you know through some through some I don't know twists of fate, uh, serendipity. I don't I don't know how you would phrase it given the outcome, but ends up working. Uh, you know, he can't, he can't, let me say, he can't serve in World War II. And so he wants to serve his country. And so he ends up working for like the biological warfare division in the government. Uh, this is all kind of interesting, but you know, I think that you mentioned it a few times the club foot, the stutter. He's very, you know, he's very self conscious of these things. I don't know if they form any of his, you know, interactions or his, or his management style or his outlook on life. Um, but but what do you think about his early life and when he's starting out his career? Uh, as I said, uh, Gottlieb came from a Jewish family in the Bronx. What I think is the most interesting about his family background, when you look back on it and and understand what he did later in life, is how different he was from all the other senior officers at the early CIA. All of them, almost without exception, were silver spoon products of the American aristocracy. They'd all gone to the same prep schools, they went to work for the same law firms and the same investment banks, and they dated the same girls, and they played in the same golf courses, and they sailed at the same yacht clubs. They were a, a certain class. Gottlieb was totally different. He was, as one of his CIA comrades once remarked, that club-footed Jew. So he would have stood out, and the CIA certainly was not a welcoming place for Jews or other minorities at that time. Now. Uh, I've come to the conclusion that actually this is not an accident, that he was chosen in part for Mm. this reason, that this actually seemed like a great qualification. Why? Because Alan Dulles and Richard Helms, who was the uh, deputy who oversaw Gottlieb to the extent that he was overseen, realized that whoever was going to run this mind control project was going to have to do terrible things. This person was going to torture people and he's probably going to kill people. And it was going to be bloody. It was going to be brutal. It was going to be horrific if you were actually in the room. Therefore, it's something that, first of all, you might not want to soil the hands of your friends with. 
But more important, Mm -hmm. it could come out one day. Something like this could be revealed. And Mm -hmm. then if it's a person who is part of our inner circle, part of our elite, we can't throw him overboard. We can't throw him under the train because he's part of our family. But with Gottlieb, if anything goes wrong, we can throw him to the wolves without any conscience because we don't know this guy. We, he's so different from us. He's some kind of crazy guy. And sure enough, when uh, one subsequent CIA director, uh, William Colby, was confronted by relatives of one of the MK Ultra victims, he did say uh, some of our people were out of control in those days. There was a lack of supervision. This is exactly the excuse that they knew they would want to use years later. So mm-hmm. they'll, they said, and this is the reason why, one reason why they didn't want to supervise him. They knew what he was doing was awful. But in secret services like the CIA, ignorance is often an asset. You don't want to know too much. And Gottlieb, uh, was allowed to operate almost completely without supervision so that later on the CIA would be able to say, oh, our big problem was we didn't supervise our officers that carefully. And one, essentially, they didn't put it this way, but the subtext was one crazy guy went off the rail. Right. And that's <laughs> right. why I think the CIA was not so upset about my project. I was able to work with them and I didn't get too much from them, but I got some stuff. And why would they be willing to cooperate? It's because of this. They would say, or their attitude was, well, boy, the CIA was sure a different place back in the 50s. You're right. They did do some crazy things, and there really wasn't much supervision. So they've disassociated themselves from it. And this Mm -hmm. is a great way to eliminate the idea that there's any institutional responsibility on the part of the CIA or the part of the U.S. government. If you say it was one crazy guy and our only mistake was we didn't supervise carefully enough, it kind of absolves everybody else of any accountability. And I think that was one of their goals. Well, I mean, it's kind of silly in some ways because he ran it for like 20 years. So, I mean, he he didn't have supervision for 20 years. I mean, even that story, I I think you're exactly right. I think that is what they wanted to say. But, I mean, it's hard to believe (laughs) even even as, you know. Even if some uh, if someone who's less cynical than I am, would I think would have a hard time swallowing that because I mean they were cl- clearly excited about the work that they you know th- the results of, of all of his experiments. Uh, but you know one of the things right at the top you know before we, we, I want to transition into MK Ultra. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting, and you know I'm aware of Project Paperclip, which is where. At the end of World War II, the U.S. government brought over you know, a ton of Nazi rocket scientists in an attempt to bolster our, you know, our, our abilities. And those scientists and their, their advancements ultimately led to us getting on the moon. I didn't realize that they brought that they were so focused on biological warfare at this time uh, in, the, in the late 40s that they brought over you know, Nazi bacteriologists and virologists. And they even did that with Japanese scientists. Both of those um, regimes were very brutal in their experimentation. And we just essentially started up that experimental, that human experiment machine with bacterias and, and, you know, poisons and aerosols. And I I had no idea that that was really going on. And to the extent that it was going on and just how much the American government was involved in that type of stuff, which then led us to MKUltra. Did you know that going into that or was this a surprise to you? 
I was aware that the U.S. government had hired uh, Nazi scientists uh, because one of them became very famous, Werner von Braun. Uh, was the person who designed the V2 rocket that created all those widows in London. And then he came over to the United States yeah. and uh, helped run our rocket program. Uh, but researching this book, I thought actually that's just uh, the tip of the proverbial iceberg. So the process was this. Immediately after the war, uh, and actually even before the war ended, uh, U.S. Secret Service tried to hire uh, Nazi spies. Uh, with the um, end of the war, we figured uh, the Germans, the Nazis, have great contacts in Russia because they've been spying on Russia all these years. They've been making war on Russia. But we haven't right. because we, they were on our side. So if we could get the entire Nazi espionage network to come to work for the United States, this would be a great coup. So first, Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, refused this request. But after he died, Truman approved it. And sure enough, uh, the entire organization of Reinhard Galen, who had been the chief uh, uh, officer for Nazi spying in Eastern Europe and Russia, all came to work for the CIA. Galen went from being on the payroll of Hitler to being on the payroll of the CIA. And then we later installed him as head of the West German Intelligence Service. Um, so that was the first step. We began hiring the former Nazi spy. Then the people in the rocket program decided, well, if we can hire the spies, let's get their rocket scientists. They probably have the best ones in the world. And they did that. And it was at that moment that the people working on biological poisons and warfare and germs and uh, people like Gottlieb who were trying to find ways to destroy a human mind and a human body and a human spirit, realize we want to hire some Nazis too. So if we could already <laughs> hire Nazi science, uh, rocket scientists and spies, what's yeah, right. wrong with us? So that's what began the process of the CIA hiring former Nazi scientists. One of them was Kurt Bloma, who was the head of the biological warfare department for Hitler and uh, was about to be tried at Nuremberg for war crimes when the Americans quietly got the word to the judges, who were all American officers, essentially saying, we don't want to hang this guy. We want to hire him. And so uh, Gottlieb worked with a number of these Nazi doctors because this is how he began MK Ultra. He was a scientist. So the first thing he decided was that if you want to find a way to in implant another mind into somebody's brain, that's what mind control would be, you first have to destroy the mind that's in there. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? Well, that's what Gottlieb spent years trying to do, using horrific drug combinations and electroshock and hypnosis and sensory deprivation and all sorts of other techniques. Um, then, of course, he asked himself, like any good scientist would, since I'm now on the path of finding ways to destroy human beings, what kind of research is already out there? Who's already looked into this so that I can build on their work? Very quickly, he came to realize that the people who really knew what poisons worked and how long they took to kill and how gruesome they were, 
were the Nazi concentration camp doctors and their Japanese counterparts, who, as you say, in some ways were even more horrifically brutal than the Germans were. So we, the CIA went out and hired those people. Um, this is particularly arresting when you consider that fact alongside Gottlieb's background. As I mentioned, uh, Gottlieb's parents emigrated from Central Europe. If they had not done that, if they had stayed in Europe, uh, they might well have been swept up in one of those uh, sweeps by the SS and sent to a concentration camp. And there, young Sidney might well have been the victim of one of those horrific so-called experiments. But yep. in the event, he didn't seem to have any hesitation working shoulder to shoulder with the same doctors who carried out those experiments. Now, when I was researching this book, Poisoner in Chief, I found what I think might be the very first CIA secret prison. It's in a beautiful chalet outside of Frankfurt. I have a photo of it in my book. It looks like it could be a and b with a nice uh, wine bar. Um, right, and yeah. it's, now, it's now owned by a young entrepreneur who's broken it up into some condos. And he was very nice. He took me in there. Um, he understood what I was doing because it had already come out. He knew what had happened in this building. There had been an article in Der Spiegel, the German news magazine, that described it as the CIA torture house. So he took me into the basement where there were some storage rooms. And he said, these rooms were the cells where the CIA doctors and their Nazi counterparts carried out those bloody experiments, which were actually just continuations of the experiments that those doctors, Nazi doctors had been conducting in the concentration camps right down the road only right. a few years earlier. Uh, and then he said to me, the people, the older people in this neighborhood, they all know what happened in this house, and they have told me that the bodies of people who were experimented to death in MKUltra in, in that house were buried in the forests nearby in places that are now covered over by shopping malls and apartment blocks. So uh, that was quite chilling to realize that where I was standing, there was Gottlieb and his fellow torturers with their Nazi friends. Uh, figuring out what to do with the next group of unfortunates that the military police were going to bring them. Or expendables, as you call it in the book. I mean, just as yeah, they were called expendables, and there sometimes would be a note saying, um, uh, disposal of the body will not be a problem. That meant we're not going to kill the guy. But when I see memos where it doesn't <laughs> right. say that, then I guess it means that uh, by default, yeah, disposal of the uh, disposable will have to be taken care of. Right. I mean, it's it's so interesting. I mean, because the way you describe it is it's almost like a fire sale on all of these war criminals. You know, I mean, I always knew the Nuremberg trials were kind of a joke, but I mean, it's it's a total fire sale. I mean, they're picking up everyone left and right and center. Uh, and, and in some ways, you know, and in some sick, diabolical way, as much as it pains me to say this, I actually do understand that there's a lot. I mean, it's what I said earlier with, you know, with the with the relatives, you know, once they die, their stories are gone. I mean, these scientists knew a lot of stuff. And in some ways, isn't it good to get that information so you don't have to retread uh, the experiments that they did? I say that, and then, you know, knowing full well that they actually did retread a lot of those <laughs> experiments. Well, I, uh, I put it this way. So, for example, one of the uh, poisons that uh, 
Gottlieb and the CIA were interested in was sarin, which is a highly deadly, uh, usually aerosolized poison. Uh, now, uh, how, is the dose of sarin that you need to kill a child the same as the dose that you need to kill an adult? Or is it a different dose? How do you find that out? The only way you can find it out is by killing some adults and then killing some children. Who had done that? The Nazis. They knew that. They actually had one of the at one of the early uh, uh, meetings between these groups. Uh, two former Nazi doctors came and presented a whole show about all their research with sarin, and they assured the people in the audience on this one detail that actually we found that um, you still need the same dose to kill a baby. And even an adolescent, we, we, we kill people at all different uh, stages of life. And the younger they get, it doesn't mean you need a lesser dose. You have to use the same dose for a child, a baby, an adolescent, a middle-aged person, an elderly person. How can you find that out? The CIA couldn't because they're not allowed to carry out those experiments. So who has that knowledge? Wouldn't you want those people to come in and help your project? So if your project is figuring out how much sarin you need to kill babies, then they would be the people you need to talk to. Did you happen to come across that Sarin PowerPoint presentation in, in your research? <laughs> you know, PowerPoint did not exist in those days, but if it had, uh, there probably would have been right. one, although the CIA might not have released. Right, some sort of, some sort of lookbook. Uh, yeah. uh, that's so funny, a pitch deck. Um, I mean, so how, how do we get, so we go from there. I mean, so the, we got, you know, as a, you know, which tied into this biological warfare division, but at some point we move into, you know, kind of the bread and butter at least as far as the mythology goes, and that is these this LSD uh, and the experiments with LSD in an attempt to either destroy, control, implant memories. Uh, I want to know how we get to that point. And one thing you may have you may have had on this, but just like where you mentioned, you know, the impending doom was kind of the the inciting incident, or the at least the carrot on the stick to get us to do all these horrible things for Gottlieb, especially in the CIA. Uh, the the other thing that was that was a driving force here for Gottlieb is that he truly believed, and and people in the CIA believed that the Russians had already figured out mind control, and that we were behind, and that it, it so so that tells you that it it existed and it's already been figured out and it's being used. We have to figure this out. So that I mean I, that was the sense of urgency that I want people to remember. You know, while you tell us how we got into LSD as part of this experiment process. Uh, well, you're absolutely right, first of all, that uh, the CIA convinced itself on the basis of misinterpreted information uh, that the Soviets had cracked the code and they were able to control a person's mind. One of the episodes, for example, was the post-war trial of the Roman Catholic prelate in Hungary, Cardinal Menzenti. Mm -hmm. yep. When he was on trial, he not only uh, confessed to crimes that he obviously had not committed, but spoke in a kind of a monotone and it looked kind of glazed. This led the CIA to conclude, okay, he, he is being controlled from outside. Somebody has seized his mind. Now, later on, many years later, we learned that none of that was true and that Minzenti had been abused with the same techniques that guards have been using for a thousand years. He was had isolation. He was beaten, repeated questioning, but it didn't have anything to do with any drug or any special technique that the Soviets had developed. Nonetheless, uh, the CIA, based on this and other misinterpreted uh, evidence, 
concluded that uh, the Soviets were very close or on the trail or had already achieved uh, the secret of mind control. And that made Gottlieb's work even more urgent. And the idea of limiting Gottlieb's work in any way, uh, completely impossible, out of the question. Uh, So uh, you asked about LSD, and this is really one of Gottlieb's most fascinating legacies. Oh, Stephen, can I pause you for one quick second? So before we get into embassy, you just made me think of a funny story that I think fits in perfectly here, and I want to touch on it really quickly before we jump into LSD. But in in 1953, you talk about, you know, similar to to that trial that you mentioned, which gave the CIA part, you know, part of their story. But in 1953, in the book, you talk about how thousands of POWs in North Korea were let loose. Uh, But there were a few number of them. I think the the number you quote in the book is 21. So 21 out of, let's say, 10,000 POWs. People. They wanted, these U.S. soldiers wanted to stay behind in North Korea. And some of the news outlets were saying that this represented a weakening of Americans, America's masculinity and its replacement by a generation of pampered kids and mama's boys, which kind of led to this idea of Manchurian candidate mind control as well. But I was thinking to myself, it was such a different time because like what would people nowadays think about, you know, let's say this happened in you know the, the war in Afghanistan or something, right? I mean, our generation, the new generation coming up now is so quick to give up on, on America that, uh, I mean, brainwashing, I feel like brainwashing must be common, but it, it just it just struck me as just the, diff, the generational difference of how people felt about, uh, you know, soldiers and masculinity in America in 1953 versus, you know, what's, you know, what's happening nowadays with the young people. It just struck me as just such a funny juxtaposition that I don't think I'm 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 articulating very well, but it was very funny in the book. You're absolutely right. So that was that episode with the Korean War prisoners was another piece of intelligence that the CIA misinterpreted when uh, some of those uh, pilots, for example, American military pilots in Korea confessed to uh, carrying out germ warfare. This was horrifically received in Washington because we always insisted and still insist that we never did that. Some of those uh, soldiers wrote that there were big problems with life in the United States. Some of them were black. Some of them said communism seemed very appealing. They didn't like some aspects of American democracy. So how did the CIA interpret this? They have to have been drugged. They have to, their minds have to have been seized. The idea that this could have been the uh, result of normal thought processes just seemed too incredible. So that was another way we jumped to the conclusion that uh, communist forces know how to control minds. We don't. And so let's get on the case and uh, no holds barred. Yeah, I, it was it was just really funny. I mean, you articulated much better, but it's just such a different time. I mean, the fifties versus uh, you know, I mean, it was eighty years ago, but uh, or seventy years ago. It's just such a different time. So, how do we go? So, we, we've got all this. We've got the CIA, you know, convinced that you know this is possible. This is happening to our soldiers. So, how do we go and just really go from you know get into LSD and then ramp up this MK Ultra project to you know what it became? Gottlieb was brought into the CIA in nineteen fifty one. And he was essentially told, we want you to consolidate our various incipient mind control research projects into one central program. Alan Dulles gave it the name MKUltra for a very conscious reason. It, it was the ultra project. If you could find a way to control people's minds, the prize would be nothing less than global mastery. 
So uh, with that prospect out there, it was natural that he would name the project MK Ultra. That's how it got its name. Um, As Gottlieb uh, immersed himself in this project and in the process becoming, I'm sure, America's and probably the world's greatest expert on poisons, um, he uh, began to focus increasingly on LSD. Don't forget that LSD was newly discovered then. Uh, it had mm-hmm. only, by the time Gottlieb came into the CIA, it was less than five years since the LSD had been discovered. So he became fascinated with LSD. The fact that it was so potent in such small quantities that it was colorless, it was odorless, it could have so many potential uses, it was so powerful. Uh, he began to think that LSD might be as one of his own chemists put it, the key that could unlock the universe. In other words, this is going to be the mind control tool. So Gottlieb became fascinated with LSD. Uh, And in 1953, he persuaded the CIA to buy the entire world supply of LSD. Uh, And the CIA did this. They bought it from the Sandoz Chemical Company in Switzerland, which was the sole manufacturer. Uh, Gottlieb uh, then set out to use this LSD in two very different ways. Uh, The first way was that he used LSD in hugely coercive and brutal experiments. He wanted to know if big overdoses of LSD could destroy a mind so that then there'd be a vacuum into which you could somehow put something else in. So how would you do that? Well, all MK Ultra records were destroyed in violation of federal law as Gottlieb and Helms left office, but some have survived in different places. And one that I found fits in exactly to what we're talking about. One of the MK Ultra experiments was carried out at the federal prison in Lexington, Kentucky. Gottlieb used to use prisons a lot for his experiments because the prisoners obviously are responsive to anything that the wardens and the doctors tell them to do. So in this experiment in Kentucky, uh, seven African-American inmates were segregated into a cell and fed what were described in the reports as double, no, I'm sorry, triple and quadruple doses of LSD every day for 77 days without being told what they were getting and what was happening to them. Uh, later on, I began to wonder, I wonder what happened to those guys. We don't know their names. Yeah. Did they ever, did they die without having any idea of what had happened to them? Did they go insane? We never know. So uh, that was the kind of coercive experiment that Gottlieb was involved with. He also wanted to test how LSD would react with sedatives and his mixture of cocktails with sedatives and uh, uh hyperactive drugs and all sorts of like how if you had LSD with electroshock how would that work what if people had hepatitis it turned out that people with hepatitis are exceptionally vulnerable to uh, LSD psychosis so Gottlieb was really the first LSD maven and the first basket of his experiments were as I said horrifically inhumane and brutal but Gottlieb also had another idea about LSD. He wanted to know how ordinary people 
would react to LSD in a clinical setting, knowing what was happening in, some, in a way that was very scientific. So the CIA didn't have any hospitals or clinics, of course. So in order to test, to carry out these tests, Gottlieb created a couple of bogus medical foundations. And these foundations then wrote to hospitals and clinics all across the United States and told them very forthrightly, uh, we are uh, interested in this new psychoactive drug called LSD. We are willing to subsidize any institution that wants to carry out these experiments. We will send you the LSD. You will then advertise for our volunteers. You'll tell them exactly what they're going to get. Um, and uh, we, you can pay them. We will give you money for that. Then you will simply write up reports on how they reacted and send them in to us. So who were among the very first people to volunteer to go and try this new psychoactive substance? One of the first was Ken Kesey, who went on to write the counterculture Bible, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, in fact, I saw a later interview with him. He said that he loved LSD so much that he not only told all his friends about it, but he got a job in the hospital. That's where he gathered material for his book. But he said, at the time, I wasn't thinking about a book. The reason I wanted to get that job at the hospital was so that I could steal the LSD out of the pharmacy and bring it to all my friends. <laughs> then one of the next guys to try it was Robert Hunter, the lyricist for the Grateful Dead. He loved it. He got all the other Grateful Dead guys and all their hangers on to use it. Uh, another one was Allen Ginsberg the radical poet who went on to become a great LSD high priest and guru. These people all got their first LSD in these MK ultra experiments. Now they didn't know, of course, that uh, Sidney Gottlieb and the CIA were supplying the LSD. Uh, they, there was no way they could have known. I later found a, uh, an interview with John Lennon in which he was asked about LSD. He replied, we must always remember to thank the CIA. Now, he had never heard of Sidney Gottlieb. Nobody had. But if he had, he would have said, we must always remember to thank Sidney Gottlieb. And the irony of the whole story at the end, of course, is that the drug that Sidney Gottlieb thought would give the CIA the tool to control the world instead wound up fueling a generational rebellion inside the United States that was aimed at destroying everything the CIA believed in. And it was through Gottlieb and the CIA that LSD leaked out into the masses. That is his probably most improbable legacy. <laughs> I mean, it, that, that's a fascinating kind of button on the story. But, you know, a couple of things I just wanted to paint in some pictures here. I mean, you did a great job, but there are some things that, that I, I just I wanted to mention here just so people can get an understand, understand just how diabolical these, these experiments were. You know, the, the thing you mentioned in Lexington, that was at, uh, you know, that was founded with, there were lots of partnering doctors who were, you know, willing participants in these, uh, you know, happy to do this. That, that experiment took place at an addiction treatment center, and they even bribed some of those, the seven African-American men with, with heroin in order to, to get them to do these experiments. Uh, and, you know, when you think about how, like, LSD, how LSD works, I, I'm with you. I don't know how they couldn't have thought that they're, they were going crazy and they, there's no way that they mentally survived that. 
Um, Whitey Bulger was also another person who was experimented on as well. Um, when, and, uh, that, and I think you mentioned the book that was not brought up in his 2011 trial or whatever. It was very, very interesting. There were also uh, experiments done on children as well under the auspices of, of helping cure schizophrenia. Uh, and so the, I think it was ages 6 to 12 they were dosed with LSD, which is, you know, just uh, it's awful. I mean, awful in, in, in any sense of the word. Uh, nefarious it comes to mind. Uh, so when, when you talk about LSD, not only... Not only was Gottlieb, were they using LSD on unwitting uh, American citizens on U.S. soil, but a lot of the people at the CIA were also on LSD. I mean, Gottlieb was using it. They were, you know, they were low-key drugging the the people at at parties, and (laughs) they're just dropping it and spiking the punch. Uh, That was kind of weird to me, especially given how stiff the CIA was. Uh, Did that strike you as odd as well? Gottlieb had, uh, as MKUltra unfolded, uh, a kind of a reputation at the CIA. And I even found a a memo written by the CIA chief of security that was circulated to uh, uh, all the officials at the CIA before the 1954 uh, office Christmas party. And the director of security says, I would not advise you to be sampling anything out of a punch bowl because Gottlieb was known to drop LSD into punch bowls. Uh, he himself, by his own account, used LSD more than 200 times, which made me wonder sometimes when I see how diabolically creative his experiments were piling right. on one kind yeah. of torture over another. Did he yeah. come up with some of these while he was tripping on acid? It's kind of a frightening thought. Um, you mentioned Whitey Bulger, and I think uh, that, that's a sort of an interesting footnote. So Whitey Bulger, of course, was this famous Boston gangster. Uh, what makes his story interesting is that although there were hundreds, probably thousands of people who were victims of MK Ultra, we don't know who they are. And they don't know who they are. I can tell you after writing right. this book, I got lots of emails from people saying, hey, I think that's what happened to my dad or, or something like that. But Whitey Bulger is one of the few people uh, who came to realize what had happened to him. So in the 1950s, uh, Bulger was a low-level hoodlum in Boston, and he was arrested for truck hijacking and sent to do a term at the federal prison in uh, Atlanta. There, there was this eminent Dr. Pfeiffer who had a big position at Emory University, and uh, he uh, came to interview uh, Bulger, presumably also other prisoners, and said, we are working on a cure for, as you put it out, schizophrenia. Can you help us test this drug? And so, knowing that it would get him good time and better treatment, uh, Bulger agreed. For more than a year, he was given LSD almost every day. He didn't understand what it was, and he writes later about how he went, I thought I was going completely crazy. I was watching the clocks jumping off the wall, I was, I have, he said he's never been able to sleep with, without the lights on the rest of his life. He's had nightmares and terrible paranoid fantasies. And uh, then he got out of prison and everything happened. And then in the mid seventies, 20 years later, he picks up a newspaper and he starts reading uh, something about drug experimentation that's coming out in these hearings. And there's this Gottlieb. And then the story came out that this Dr. Pfeiffer down in Atlanta was actually working with MK Ultra, And Whitey Bulger 
told the other guys in his gang when he read that, he said, I'm going to Atlanta and I'm going to find that guy and I'm going to kill him. Now, he never did that. Pfeiffer died of what we think were natural causes. Um, but it shows you <laughs> that uh, here's one guy who understood it. And because of the kind of person he was, decided he wanted to, to carry out revenge. So uh, there's a reason why those uh, why those experiments were kept secret and why those records were destroyed. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's a, it's a fascinating story. And, you know, I, I want to encourage people to th there's so much more to this story. Uh, and, and I love the epilogue of some of these hardened CIA agents who were overseeing these horrible, horrific crimes and how one of them ends up as a substitute teacher. There's a little spoiler for you, a little teaser. Uh, you got to check that story out. Now, in, in closing here, you know, I don't know if this is profound. I'm going to pretend that it's profound. But this is kind of what I came up with after reading the book. It seemed I mean, at the end, at the end of all of these experiments, it feels like uh, Gottlieb was a little defeated. He definitely did not figure out mind control, but maybe he did. I mean, in some ways, his mind was controlled by the CIA, their propaganda, the patriotism, and by his oversight of MK Ultra itself. I mean, he believed he was saving the human race, or at least Americans. He believed, you know, the Soviets were the enemy. He couldn't tell right from wrong. I mean, in some ways, he and he became almost a perfect Manchurian candidate for for uh, of the American government and the CIA in particular. Did you kind of come to that conclusion as well? I mean, it seems to me like that's kind of what happened. I didn't, but I came to it later, and I'll tell you what happened after I said it, Sydney. Is that is that, is that what happened? No, after? but you, you you picked up on it in a way right, that I right. didn't. Yeah. So I teach at Brown University, and when my book came out, they asked me to give a talk at Brown, which I did, and uh, one of my eminent colleagues uh, raised her hand after my talk to ask a question, and uh, he, she said, oh, it was very nice, very interesting, but I, she said, I, I, I think you made one mistake. It's one of your uh, observations that I don't think is correct. You said that uh, Sidney Gottlieb in the late 50s, early 60s, wrote this memo saying there's no such thing as mind control. We should wipe out MK Ultra. It doesn't work. There's no such thing. And that as a result, we can say that brainwashing doesn't exist. And she said, I got a question for you. Don't you think that brainwashing did succeed once? And the person who was really brainwashed was Gottlieb. Mm -hmm. And so I want you to know that although you are a more penetrating thinker than I am, you're not more penetrating than all my <laughs> colleagues at Brown. Uh, well, that's up for debate. That's up for debate, sir. Uh, but it's a, it's a fascinating book. I, I, I honestly, I loved it. It kept me up at night. Well, I know that wasn't your intention. That is the hallmark uh, of a great story for sure. Yeah, it kept me up at night myself while I was writing it. I can tell you. <laughs> yeah, we didn't even talk about some of the gruesome parts that, um, yeah, just made me question humanity. So how can people get in, get in touch with you? How can people find the book? Are you, do you do, do social media, uh, places other than Amazon? I know obviously people can find it on Amazon, but you know, what are you promoting? Uh, so I do have a website. It's stephenkinzer.com. I'm a newspaper columnist. I write a column every two weeks. So I put all my columns on there and my books and interviews and stuff are on there. I'm at, at Stephen Kinzer on uh, Twitter. And uh, I even dabble in Facebook where you can also find me. You're not an Instagram, TikTok user. No, I haven't gotten to that point yet. I, uh, if I couldn't do Skype, 
how am I going to handle TikTok? <laughs> Fair enough. And you'd be monitored by the by the Chinese government as well. So let's it's probably, probably you know they they're reading my phone every day anyway. There's nothing <laughs> to stop that. You'll end up in someone else's book in twenty years. <laughs> oh well, I'm sure there'll be another book written about what the CIA was doing in the 2020s that will shock people then, like this one does now. Poisoner in Chief is now available in paperback from your favorite independent bookstore. And uh, you'll be interested to know that uh, several, I've been asked to have it translated into several languages. And just this week, I received a package, which I'm, I'm a little bit reluctant to open. But when I opened it up, <laughs> this uh, four copies of the Bulgarian translation of Poisoner in Chief, which I'm, I'm now holding in my hands as a great cover. So uh, the story is getting out there. And for those people that can only read Bulgarian, uh, you've got a, a, an, an option. But if you'd like to read it in English, um, it should be easily available. And uh, maybe you don't want to read it right before bed. I, I think that's probably a good piece of advice. <laughs> yeah, I, I read this before bed. Well, I'm glad it's available in Bulgaria. Uh, this me this message should get out all over the world. Although I, I don't know that I love the idea of everyone in the world understanding how uh, the American <laughs> government worked in the 50s, because um, I am a proud American. But it's still a wonderful story. Well, Stephen Kinzer, this is a great book and a, a great story. And it's told very well by an incredible researcher. Uh, I just want to thank you so much for writing this and for being on the show today. It's been fun. Uh, reliving it all is not always so pleasant, but uh, we need to look in the mirror and understand the truths about our history. And that's been the guiding principle in all of my books and all my writing. That is very true. At least you weren't in the room while it was going on. We can say that. Uh, so <laughs> I want to thank you and I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glenn Co. production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Now, if you like the show, you got to subscribe. Go to your favorite podcasting platform. We're on all of them. And if you don't have a favorite or if you don't know what I'm talking about, we got you covered. Go to fascinatingnouns.com, scroll to the bottom, and you can find every which way to listen to Fascinating Nouns on your favorite podcasting platform. And if you go right to the right, you can even find us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, and YouTube. It's all right there, Fascinating Nouns webpage. But if you don't want to go anywhere else, you can find all of our episodes right there, organized by episode number or guest name and topic right at the top of the page. It's easy to navigate, and every page has bonus episode and supplemental information of all the things that we talked about. And of course, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. So go to danieljglenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.